You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Mark Kilborn, and I will be your host today as we dig into the world of Moss Book 2, an incredible VR adventure game that follows the adventures of a mouse named Quill and her efforts to save her world from a great unmaking. Joining us today are Kristen Quinn, audio director on Moss Book 2, whose previous work includes the Fable series, Sunset Overdrive, and Fear. Welcome to the podcast, Kristen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Stephen Hoddy, voice director, engineer, and magical unicorn on Moss, whose previous work includes Crucible, Destiny, and Saints Row. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. And finally, Sun Kim, senior sound designer on Moss, book two, whose previous work includes Grounded, Crackdown 3, Super Lucky's Tale, and more. It is great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. So as we just covered, you've all worked on traditional AAA games. Aside from the obvious difference of wearing a VR headset when you play this, how does working on a AAA VR game differ from working on an on-screen game? Yeah, I think coming into Moss 2 and joining Polyarch, this was my um, first VR title, actually. So a lot of the learnings I took from Steven's first experience of working on Moss, and really I found it wasn't actually that different. I think, you know, not faking it is always the route to go. And so really attaching all the sounds to game objects. We kind of use more 2D sounds as our sub in a lot of ways. So we use it to build more body and low end around some of the sound design moments and cinematic moments. But really I thought... VR, the thing that made it different, and especially with Moss, was just being in the space and being part of the world and just the sense of immersion and the opportunity that you have to interact with Quill is just so magical. And you can reach in and you can interact with her and you can touch things and move them in the world. And there's just this real sense of presence where dynamic moments and interactions just become so much more believable in VR. Yeah, I can, I can plus one that. Um, I think that one of the things about VR that makes it kind of of its own genus for sound design is the dynamic interactions, right? We have these objects in the games that we refer to as devices, and you can reach out and manipulate them with your hands. And so there's a lot of opportunity there for highly dynamic, highly reactive, complex audio systems. There might be another one, which maybe Kristen and Son, you could chime in on, which is about the expectations for our characters and the level of fidelity that's sort of required when a character is sitting a foot away from you and they're looking up at you and emoting in some way or they're traversing through the environment. And it's not on a screen that's projected out, you know, 10 feet in front of your face. It's a thing that's happening kind of in your close personal space that the expectations there for the level of fidelity and reactivity of those assets is, is higher, more detailed, more nuanced in that way. And then we talk a lot about perspective as well. You know, maintaining that glue that comes from all sounds being kind of localized in that area becomes really important. I see Kristen nodding and Sun nodding too, so that's good. <laughs> Yeah, plus one to everything that Kristen and Steven said. And I think, yeah, I was expecting more of a transition actually for designing specifically for like a AAA 
game and kind of like what Kristen was talking about, the transition seemed pretty normal. I think the biggest thing for me, I think, was like Steven called out, making sure that perspective is so much more important because it's VR is so much more immersive than like a flat screen game, right? If something feels off, like from an audio perspective, it really pulls you out. And I think Kristen and Steven did such a great job of the audio direction for the program and talking about how, when, and where to use specific perspectives. Because we do blend and kind of play between um, the player's perspective in the world as well as from Quill's perspective. There's one thing that I kept coming back to about the direction for Moss and like translating what Steven had already built and then how we build on top of that and and, um, not lose what makes the audio experience in the Moss world. And we always talk about it like, you're looking into a glassless terrarium, but through a magnifying glass. And so what that really means is like the spaces become characters unto themselves with how rich they are. And to Sun's point and thinking about scale, there's more detail in certain things. And it's a constant conversation around, well, do you want this from a human perspective or do you want this from Quill's perspective? Because making things feel more detailed than you would expect them to be really sells her emotional experience of being in the space. And so much of the game is emotionally driven from the story and the narrative of her as a character that selling things from her perspective becomes more important as you progress through the game. And it helps build the really emotional context that we want you to experience as we tell Quill's story because it's really about her. The emotional connection to Quill, like you mentioned, is a huge part of this game. And I'm totally not embarrassed to say that this game is on the very short list of games that have ever gotten me to tear up. And I'm sure you know what scene I'm thinking of when I say that. But wow, it was just heart-wrenching. Her footsteps, her breathing, her voice. You know, even though the narrator will speak for her at times, and it seems very intentionally not at times in that one particular scene. She still conveys so much just with the sound she makes, even though she's not speaking English. What can you tell me about creating the sound of her, the sound of her voice, the sound of her movements, uh, creating it, mixing it, and just building that relationship with her? Working on Quill's movement sounds and all that, it's interesting because I feel like we had all these cinematic moments in the games that we ended up hitting individually. And I feel like it was kind of a, a combo of like uh, i would be working with some of the the foley sounds for the the cinematics and then we also had um an incredible voice actor um elise cates and she was the voice of all the emotes for quill and she did such an incredible job voicing like quill's like squeaky mouse voice and i feel like that combo of keeping all these like really delicate moments in the foley and making sure that they sound right not just to the space but also like going back to the whole perspectives thing i think specifically with her foley there were so many little details like she has tiny little feet right in this massive world and to kind of really help sell that we're playing with like a bit of reverb and also like these super delicate sounds that were treating as if we're from the player's perspective so yeah it's essentially selling that that she's this tiny little thing in this massive huge world right and yeah i think just props to elise for doing an incredible job with her voice performance on all that and yeah it's just a lot of fun to work on those those cinematics yeah it was it's cool to hear you all talk about the perspective and the scale of these things because that's something i was noticing as i was whenever i could manage to not get sucked in and focus on the audio of it i was noticing the the differences in perspectives for some of these sounds and how carefully they were chosen. And it was really hard not to get sucked in, which I think is a testament to the quality of the work. But yeah, that's really cool to hear about. Yeah, and I I just 
want a plus one, like working with Elise, like she's so flexible and is so good at taking feedback and, and direction in terms of, we redid the scene you're talking about that brought tears to your eyes <laughs> like four or five times. And so it was really important for us to land what is the range of her. And like Stephen had done this amazing job of like the emotive performances are pitched up. And to feel deliberately smaller like a mouse, right? Whereas, like, Morla's performance as the narrator and the voice of Quill often also, like, she naturally changes her voice to sound more mouse-like. But we didn't need to apply pitch. But I also think it created a really unique perspective difference between understanding when Morla is performing as Quill versus when Elise is taking on more of the emotive performance. And by creating a little bit of distinction in those two characters, I, I think it also helped tell the in-game story in a different way that gave you space from the library, which is actually a storybook that's being read to you. And so it was really important to understand because there's two worlds in Moss. There's the world of Moss and then there's the library where the story of Quill and Moss is being told, right? And I don't want to spoil the end of the game, but there's also a question of how those two worlds are related to each other. And so constantly thinking about those two things and when to lean into one versus the other um, is a regular conversation. When you talked about devices earlier, the interactive objects that the character interacts with or that Quill interacts with, you know, one of the ones that was really memorable to me were the the kind of pendulum platforms in the greenhouse that would swing around. And they sounded really, really amazing. I'm curious if you can talk a bit about the design and iteration process on those. The pendulum was the first device that I ended up building. And so it was a real collaboration between Steven and I, me understanding and learning what he had already built from Moss One and understanding that. And also like thinking about ways we could move away from having to custom build each device and like how to systematize it. And this is where the magical unicornness comes in. <laughs> um, so I'd love for you to share how we change the device system sure <laughs> let's see where to start i think you know one of the the things that uh is really I, i'm really glad that none of the players or any of my colleagues can see any of the blueprint that i, that I did <laughs> any of the scripting that i did in, in moss one but you know i sort of found myself since it was one of the most like heavily scripted games I'd, that i'd ever worked on um just sort of violating a lot of best practices about you know how to share functionality between objects and so when we got to Moss 2, there was the opportunity to just like destroy all of that terrible scripting and build everything up from the ground up. And we do expose a lot of the parameters that we ended up using a lot on Moss 1, which was just like very basic stuff. Like you're reaching out and you want to interact with an object and so the object sort of knows as as you're approaching it that you're getting close and so there's some indication about like that this thing that you're interacting with is interactable in some way um, that feedback is delivered uh, through audio as well as visuals and then there there's also a lot of physics parameters that are involved so tracking things like velocity and angles of things 
all that stuff, we get that stuff for free, basically, on each object, the systems that we have. They just kind of wake up and they're already sending that stuff out to the audio engine and we can pick it up. So a lot of what we're doing is just layering things, making things as responsive as possible, interpolating those values to make sure that they sound natural. And so then just a lot of focus goes into game feel after that, which is like, okay, we get the interaction going and we interact with it a whole bunch and post it for each other. Like we have a really great collaborative audio environment where we are posting our assets for each other to, to review. And then it's just kind of, yeah. You know, often physics are a hard thing to get right. I know from experience and pulling in all those values and trying to make things feel like they're just the right weight. They're just the right amount of momentum is is difficult. Some of that is, I think, just principles of, of having really great designers that are masters of game feel in and of themselves. So like the physics problems that are maybe apparent in other VR games that we don't have have a lot to do with that reactivity being decoupled from the hand. So like in order to get that weight, we don't attach things directly to the hand. You reach out and you grab something, you move it, and there's a tether that, that connects the hand to the object. And it's sort of like a force that's being transmitted from the hand to the object. And that gives the object the opportunity to, to maintain its, its weight, move slowly or have inertia, which then is something that we can reinforce through audio. And it's not just being wiggled around as if it has no weight. Certain devices always have unique elements that go beyond like what just pre-exists in the device component that Stephen built. And so there's always some special case things that we also have to put together. And in the pendulum in particular, I think it was creating more sense of understanding the degrees at which the pendulum was existing in space at any given point in time. And then thinking about scale too, because the pendulum is really tall. And so like thinking about how we're going to support content at different height levels for the pendulum. So there were sounds that were designed to play from the top on the ceiling. And there were sounds that were designed to play like at the pivot point in the midsection. And then there were sounds that were designed to play on the platform itself. So yeah, really thinking about scale and position as it exists in the world and kind of the perspective from the player's eyes. Environmental sounds, I feel, carry a lot of weight at times because often the music dies away when you're just focus on platforming and puzzle solving and stuff. Sometimes little bits come in, but tell me about the background process. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the ambiences, or particularly the castle ambience, was one of the first things I started on when I first joined Polyarch and uh, was ramping up on Moss 2. And I feel like, yeah, the ambiences tell so much. And I think Steven did such a good job with the first game of like using sound to kind of like fill out the whole space in the world of Moss, right? Because, I mean, props to the artists. They do an incredible job creating such like lush and environments that are so full of life and, and tell so much like visual storytelling in and of themselves, right? But then it's our job to go in after the art pass is done and kind of like fill in even more, right? So it's like, like, what what can we imply like in terms of life that's out there or even like for example like with the castle ambiences we kind of wanted to sell this like really desolate place that's kind of a little old and it's been there for who knows how many years right i'm sure the story people can correct me and tell me exactly how many years it's been there but like all these like little details of like you just hear debris crumbling off in the corner and just like all these like different storytelling elements right and I think, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, but you revamped the ambient system for this game. Is that correct? Yes. But before I sort of talk a little bit about that, I just want to call out what a great job Sun did in those areas and not to 
pass by. What a difficult sound design challenge that is to actually put sound design for like an empty space, basically, that has no life. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing there. There's nothing that's moving. And yet you have to find a story to tell somehow in that environment. And even more than that, like some of our interiors, what happens with the exteriors, uh, for those of you that haven't played the game, is that they're 360 degrees you know, there's art there to look at. There's environment art there to look at. But when you're in the interiors, there's like this 180 degree or or less cone of like interior space and back behind you, it's nothing. It's just, it's just kind of an abyss. And those are more diorama-like in their presentation. And so Sun is like a, a master of getting into the, to these empty spaces and like making this really interesting, compelling ambience that carries things through and like you said mark what happens is like with moss there isn't music that's just like wall to wall and so the the cues are very purposeful they're deliberately placed and they come and they go and then the rest of it is just quill moving through the environment so what you're left with are the little tiny pitter patter of mouse feet and ambience and so I think, and maybe, I don't know, Kristen and Son, I've sort of like lost perspective since I've been at Polyarch for this long. I feel like our ambiences are really, really busy. Like we have a lot of stuff that we try to just pack in there because you're trying to get Quill from the left side of the room to the right side of the room or to the back of the room. And the music cue, you're stuck trying to figure out how to do that. And the music cue has, has long since passed. And we still have to message that the world is alive in, in some way. You know, for the for this ambient system, I think for Moss One, what we had was like a series of emitters that were all positioned around a camera and that camera, those emitters wouldn't rotate with the camera, but they would follow the position of the camera. And the whole idea there was to try to get the ambient sounding natural enough that it felt like the way ambient sounds when you're out in the forest or whatever and you turn your head. And we have like near field ambience and mid field and far field ambiences. And the most natural sounding panning we could come up with was with these emitters that were placed out into the world. That created some technical challenges when you're moving from room to room and where the positions wouldn't update totally and so there's like a couple rooms where loading gets funky and and maybe there's like a little hitch in the ambience in between rooms and it's mostly not noticeable but we because we are listening to it so much it it would drive us crazy and we tried to try to figure out exactly what it was that was causing this problem and so one of the solutions was to use just the emitter listener chaining functionality and wise so the emitters now emit from a theoretical location in the world and it's positioned around a theoretical listener they don't ever move but the listener does rotate according to a delta from the camera and that listener which is listening for the ambience then becomes an emitter itself which is chained to the camera listener and that ambience listener is two-dimensional so it's just passing that stream directly back to the camera Um, and that ended up eliminating, I want to say, 95% of the problems uh, that we had. There's still, um, you know, if you're listening really hard, you can probably find a little, a a couple hiccups here and there, but it it seemed to smooth that out. Also, I think when we're talking about the emitters that get placed um, for the room, like they're also height based. So they're like three sets of quad. 
We build them kind of thinking about, well, like if you take the forest or like any outdoor space, like they're built in the sense of like, well, what's the forest canopy sounds? What's the like mid-level ground floor sounds? And then like if you have anything below you, what are those elements? And each one of those bases are built as like a set of quad sounds around you. And so... I also think part of the lushness of being in VR and moving your head around is because you have like not only these elements around you, but also height base. So as you're looking up and down, you're getting a sense of orientation and and things like that. It's also like we started introducing on Moss to a listener cone. And so we could do things that were like on a horizontal plane or elevation based, um, do slight things where we're adjusting the volume of the bus volume. So as you turn your head, you're going to get less dry signal, but you're still going to get things pushing through the verb. And because you, you're moving your head so much in VR, those like really subtle shifts, even if they're probably not noticeable to the user, really impact the position and feel of sounds in the environment. It became something, I was like doing it as a test case. Um, and then we were like, oh my gosh, this this like, we need to put this on everything. And so it pretty much, I think, ended up on almost everything in the game. But I think it really adds to the positionality of the game and carving more space and making the world a little bit more immersive and a little bit more believable. Yeah, I think that that like um, we're sort of contrarian as a studio in terms of like using binaural rendering. We don't really we I think all three of us don't really like it, at least not for Moss. And so we just decided not to not to use it. But that when Kristen introduced that like azimuthy sort of filtering thing, it was like the better version of a of an hrtf that it's like you turn your head and this filter is working but it's it you don't hear it it's it's transparent you don't hear the filter sweeping through broadband noise like it just kind of sounds like you're turning your head actually and everything sounded really gentle and it's one of those things that it's like you put it on one object and you can kind of hear it but in aggregate across all of the things it really made a huge a huge difference so kudos to Kristen for putting that in so you really only have one voice in this game that's speaking English. You've got the narrator voice talking to the player. It feels like I'm a kid listening to mom reading me a bedtime story, which is amazing. Tell me about what the process was like working with, uh, with Morla on this voice, getting it into the game. I mean, that's a lot of weight for one voice to carry. So I'm curious to hear more about that process. Okay. I feel like this is a, this is a, a podcast maybe in and of itself. <laughs> Morla's contribution is just massive. Let's see. So the first thing we did is we got her the script just really early, like six months ahead of time when all of the story beats were sort of in and maybe the prose wasn't in, but all the characters are basically represented. The basic arc of the game was understood. And one of the things that she does is she just reads it to her son, Cole, periodically before bed and sort of does something like a playtest for him. And um, maybe if it's okay to just plug that we're actually going to do a GDC talk 
about this process. So um, be excited to go into it in a bit more detail in March. But um, she's like just starting to try th- some things out with with her son, and then at some point we you know get together with the writers and start trying to find out what the voices are for each character. That each character has its own separation from the other characters, such that you know when she's switching back and forth, it's clear which character is which. We give her a lot of reference material. Um, we send her full playthroughs of the game for her for her to watch. We bring a lot of reference material into the studio with us so that we're playing music for her in the session sometimes. We're, you know, having her watch gameplay captures in the session as well so she can drop into the world as much as possible. I would say one additional thing I'd add in there is when I first came on and Stephen and I were talking about VO in Moss too, we wanted to talk about creating more separation between the characters. And so one thing we pivoted from Moss 1 to Moss 2 was actually making the 3D characters that she was voicing as a narrative positional in the world. Because previously, all the dialogue was 2D and center channel and, you know, really focused on breaking that up and just creating even more separation between the characters by having the position added in there. Yeah, that's that's a good call out, Kristen. Like, the VO lives in this kind of in-between place. The characters are doing a performance somewhere in this in the scene, but they're not opening their mouths. There's no lip sync. There's sort of a narrator that is speaking the lines. And one of the other things that Kristen introduced this time around is some additional, a very amount of light processing to the narrator when the player is in the world of Moss. So that is a 2D performance. And when there is a character speaking dialogue, that is a 3D performance played at the location from the character in the scene. The dialogue system was upgraded this time around to have that level of granularity when we're switching between each character and to maintain the natural pacing of dialogue in between those lines as well. I noticed in looking at the credits of the game that Jason Graves did the music, which I found, I guess, a bit unexpected. I don't want to pigeonhole him, but I know him from Dead Space and Lone Echo and you know, his work on the Dark Pictures anthology. This seems very out of character for him. Maybe I just haven't heard other stuff he's done like this, but I'm curious to hear about the process of getting him involved in the series in general, because he worked on the first one too, and what the process was like working with him. You know, you do not want to pigeonhole Jason Graves. He's <laughs> uh, a renaissance man, for sure, in terms of genre. And honestly, that's like, it was a big personal lesson that I learned through through this process and when we were originally trying to find who was going to be the composer for the original Moss you know his name came up and I had a similar reaction was I was like hmm what's that about but he gave us everything it was clear that he really really wanted to make music for this game Jason Graves is an animal lover at heart and I think that's one of the things that drew him so much to this game and he is a highly melodic lyrical composer as well and I've had the pleasure of listening to his music now for six years and I still don't tire of it and it's still stuff that gives me chills and the stuff that I've worked on like I'm you know mixing the first record I've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times um, and it's still moving to me. He outdid himself again this time under under Kristen's direction. Yeah, it was my first time working with Jason, and he's such a delight. And 
Part of also coming on and understanding how the music was built for Moss 1 and what was different about Moss 2 and how did the music system need to evolve and change to work with this project was it always told a story. It was very linear in the best ways in Moss 1 because what makes the music in Moss so great is that it feels like the music gets to take you on a ride and come to a conclusion. And in order to make that work for Moss 2, we had to still maybe systematize the the music a bit more because there's more backtracking in Moss 2. And so we pivoted a little bit more to a system that could allow music to, like, if you're in an area for long enough, it would come back in and give you the explore cue. But we still wanted to ensure that we didn't lose that scripted feel that allowed the music to play out. And Jason is such an amazing talent that he made my life so easy. I basically was like, here's the emotional arc. Here's what's happening in this room. Here's what's happening in this room. And like, what makes the most sense? What should the music do here? And he's also really great at understanding like the, the sound design and the starkness and the music that it's a, it's a dance, you know? And there are moments and beats in a game where music has to be front and center and it's so important. But there's also moments where if you take that music away for moments, it makes it even more impactful, right? And so... I think Jason really understands that. And so working with him in that regard was really amazing. And he'll always surprise you. I'll be like, here's what I want. Here's what I like. think I need. Uh, here's the emotional experience. And he'll come back and give me something that is what I needed, but maybe slightly different in the best possible way, right? And I actually think it was that collaboration and not being prescriptive about what the music should be, but more about talking about the emotional tone and the experience and then leaning in on, he would give me these mock-ups and I would be like, oh, these really sustained moments during this boss fight, like it's really making me like feel this experience and actually like, oh, it's just giving me chills. And so... Like, let's lean into that and carry that more through the entire piece. And so he's just so great about the back and forth and the collaboration and it truly being a creative endeavor on both sides to understand what the game needs, as well as understand that dance and handshake between sound design and music. And it's also like, how do you create space for both? And so for Moss, it was very much like, Let's remove a lot of the rhythm. A lot of the musical score is told through melody and themes. And he's such a master craftsman at pulling these themes and bringing them back in and moments you wouldn't expect them that like just makes you connect with the world and the characters and the story. And just he released a video that everyone should totally go check out that is like how he did the theme evolution and Moss. And it just it even surprised me. And I like worked with him on the music. And so, yeah, the amount of emotion uh, and thought that he puts into crafting the experience and really being able to land those emotional moments is just beyond believable. I've talked to a couple of folks about this and I, this might become a recurring question just because I know it's so popular among us game audio folks, but I hear some of you are Reaper users and I'm curious about whether that's a big part of your workflow and some of the neat things you're doing with it that others like myself can learn from. 
Yeah, I mean, Reaper was new um, since I joined Polyarch. I like had decided to pivot to it. And I was like, joining a new studio is such a great opportunity to actually make a DAW change. And I had seen some of the scripts and the community building that was coming out around it and just thought it was a good opportunity to kind of automate more of my workflow and learn a bunch of things that I already knew that maybe were called something different in a completely new DAW format, but really are all the same. But Reaper is special in the way that it's really open and really uh, customizable. Um, And so Steven managed to um, build us some tools that allowed it to talk to Wise and make our streamline our exporting process from Reaper in this really amazing way. So I, I was just trying to do the math in my head, like how long I've been using Wise, and it's I think like two, um, since 2019, so that's 14 years or something like that. And I found myself doing the same things kind of over and over again, even though I, I was a Nuendo user for many years and actually kind of still am. <laughs> gotten the opportunity to switch over, even though I'm fully intend to at some point in time. Which is basically like you import something, you create a random container that is named the same thing as the files are, and then you click the shuffle button, and you click the streaming button, and then you create an event that is named the same as the random container. And I can't tell you how many thousands of times I've done that. And I think, you know, it just got to a place where there wasn't a whole lot of pressing work. And I had a couple of, of free weeks um, on another project. And it, we, we had all talked about this future world where you actually just don't need to do any of that stuff. All you have to do is just name the files. And if you name the files, you get all that other stuff for free. And so, you know, it took a week or two of getting it all set up, but basically there's a button now that you can press in Reaper or just a script that you can run that handles all of that for you. And it could probably be adapted really to any DAW, but Reaper has Python bindings, so that's what we went with. And um, it seems like it's been working okay. I'm sounding yeah. you can kind of confirm. I was going to say... Does that accurately describe yeah. the thing that, and what it does? As, as someone who uses it every single day, I, I say thank you and my wrists, thank you. And yeah. <laughs> it's like all the repetitive clicks is now just a single keystroke. And I think, yeah, and it's great because like the same thing where there's so many clicks that are needed for the same process, just making that workflow so much faster. And I think even just beyond like the random containers, like it just looks for your file name and if it has like our naming convention for a loop and it'll figure out if it's a single loop, it'll set it to looping. Or if it's like a, or a random container of loops, it'll figure all that out. And it's like super nice to just be able to, like Steven was saying, just do your file name, have your export, hit a button, and it just takes care of everything. So nice. And to Reaper's credit, they did recently come out with their Reaper scripts. And Kristen and I were looking at it for a bit, but there's a few things that are specific to our workflow at our studio that Steven had accounted for. And I'm like, all right, well, it's still less steps on our end. So we're going to keep with uh, Steven's scripts. So I have my stream deck in front of me and I literally (laughs) have a button with Steven's face on it that says (laughs) Steven's magic import. Love it. Um. Yeah, I should get a picture of Steven superimposed on a unicorn, but um, Mm. yeah. Business cards next, the same magical unicorn. (laughs) Excellent. All right, well, 
Thank you all for joining us to discuss this game. I intentionally didn't get into some of the specifics with characters because I didn't want to spoil anything because this game has got an incredible story that I really hope everybody listening will go out and experience for themselves. But thank you for sharing details with us uh, about this game. I saw that you're nominated for a few things now. So best of luck. And again, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks. thanks. This was super fun. Dumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.